Hello, I'm Marilyn Cooley with this National Philharmonic introduction to Spirited Brahms, performances of the Violin Concerto and the Fourth Symphony. You've probably heard of the three Bs. Originally, in the mid-1800s, they were Bach, Beethoven, and Berlioz. Then, along came the composer that Schumann and others believed would assume the mantle of Beethoven, Johannes Brahms. In the late 1800s, the conductor Hans von Bülow referred to the three Bs as the holy trinity of music, Brahms being the Holy Spirit. Von Bülow is also the one who declared Brahms' first symphony Beethoven's tenth. For a composer prone to self-criticism, these accolades were not easy for Brahms to handle. Many composers have suffered from imposter's syndrome, Brahms perhaps more than all the rest. He actually destroyed many of his letters and manuscripts, much to the dismay of his lifelong friend, the pianist Clara Schumann. Some of this pressure is easy to understand. Brahms grew up in very modest circumstances, and later in life was thought of as being coarse and uncouth and irascible, but that's another story. As a boy, Brahms earned money for his family by playing piano in houses of ill repute. In his late teens, he toured with a Hungarian violinist, through whom Brahms became familiar with Hungarian folk music, and that later influenced his two sets of Hungarian dances. That association led to his being introduced to the famous Hungarian violin virtuoso Josef Joachim. They maintained a lifelong, if at times very stormy, friendship. Joachim sent Brahms to Dusseldorf with a letter of introduction to the renowned composer and music journalist Robert Schumann, who, with his wife Clara Wieck Schumann, a famous pianist, welcomed the 20-year-old Brahms warmly. Although Schumann was no longer the editor of the New Journal of Music, he continued to post commentary about up-and-coming artists and composers, and he saw Brahms as the best of the best. His article introducing Brahms was similar to one he wrote 20 years earlier about Chopin. Hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Back for a moment to the three Bs. Brahms is the most recent of the three, and in fact, when he died, it was only three years away from the turn of the 20th century. An interesting historical note is this recording. It's Brahms, stating his location and name, and starting to play one of his Hungarian dances. In Dr. Fellinger's house by Dr. Brahms, Johannes Brahms. He starts playing his first Hungarian dance. This was recorded on December 2, 1889, by Thomas Edison's emissary, who was demonstrating the phonograph in Europe. The host noted that Brahms, who had been listening to demonstrations of the device, was supposed to just play his piano music. But the composer was so excited that he shouted into the funnel attached to the piano first. Brahms was a pianist, and when he wrote his violin concerto, he depended quite a bit on his friend, the famous Hungarian violinist Josef Joachim. Brahms tended to ignore information such as bowings and fingerings in his scores, and Joachim covered quite a bit of that for this concerto. In fact, he had a major hand in creating the solo part. He wrote the first movement cadenza himself. 
When Joachim made suggestions, Brahms sometimes followed them and sometimes did not. But it's not completely stretching the truth to say that this composition was a collaboration between Brahms and Joachim. The first movement is in sonata form, and the orchestra has already presented the first, second, and closing themes by the time the soloist appears in measure 90, a good three minutes into the piece. The solo entrance is in the midst of the tumultuous closing theme in the orchestra. And the soloist provides a filigree-like statement before actually stating the first theme almost another two minutes later. The second theme is stated by the soloist, and then a new third theme, flowing and lyrical, is given to the soloist. The soloist and orchestra pass this back and forth. Then there's an ominous shift to minor, and suddenly the soloist has the darker closing theme. After a fast descent by the soloist, the development section begins. Orchestra plays the first theme to signal the recapitulation, leading to Joachim's cadenza. The common final trill in the cadenza signals the orchestra's return for the final coda, which starts with a gentle reminder of the first theme.
The second movement is in ABA form, and once again the orchestra plays for a couple of minutes before the solo violin enters. The big difference here is that the introduction is played only by the winds. It's a placid tune in F major. The B section is introduced by the soloist in a minor key. section returns, back in F major, and it's during this section the violin has some of its most expressive music in this movement. The finale is a rondo, back in the home key of D major. In a rondo, there's an A theme that returns repeatedly between contrasting themes. Here it's kind of a dance-like theme that opens the movement, with the soloist front and center, and once the theme is stated, it's handed over to the orchestra. The second, B theme, again starts with the soloist. The main rondo theme returns, again with the soloist, and by the time the third theme, C, appears, the soloist and orchestra are sharing a sort of meandering tune, and there are hints of the main theme within it. Before the first theme returns, as expected in a rondo, there's instead a return to the B theme before the first rondo tune begins again. To conclude the movement, there's a coda, which transforms the first rondo tune into a fast dance in 6-8. The soloist sets it up. You can hear it coming. Our soloist is the wonderful young American violinist Melissa White, a co-founding member of the Harlem Quartet.
She won the Sphinx competition for young black and Latino classical musicians as a teenager, and she's been performing all over the world ever since. Melissa is making her National Philharmonic debut with these concerts. You can get a sense of her outstanding musicianship in a terrific performance on YouTube of the Schubert Quintet with the Harlem Quartet and cellist Carter Bray. Brahms worked on what he thought might become his fifth symphony, but never really developed the piece. His fourth symphony, in E minor, is his last completed symphony. It's somewhat enigmatic. When he and a colleague first played the piano arrangement for friends, the occasion did not go well. The listeners found it confusing, especially the weighty last movement. Brahms himself noted that he wasn't sure he would ever let the symphony see the light of day in performance. He actually wrote to his publisher, Simrock, you'd be insane to invest a penny in it. But when it was finally premiered, it was met with great enthusiasm. The puzzling aspects of the symphony begin right away. Brahms originally started the symphony with an introduction by the winds, but he threw that out, and the opening in the strings almost sounds as if he started somewhere in the middle of a phrase. This first movement is technically a sonata form, with the exposition containing a couple of themes, a development section, and a recapitulation. But Brahms takes enough side roads to make the form a bit confusing to follow. Brahms kind of sneaks up on the second theme with alternating winds and pizzicato strings. Here's one of those confusing moments, about four minutes into the first movement. It sounds as if Brahms is repeating the opening, but he diverges instead into the development section. The recapitulation is also a little mysterious. It's expected to sound like the opening, but he's already done that at the beginning of the development. The recapitulation begins with the opening theme strangely elongated and in the winds instead of strings. The strings have an odd wave-like figure underneath.
The movement ends with a coda, sort of a tail added onto the structure. And the last two chords are interesting for two reasons. One, it's what's called a plagal cadence, also known as the Amen cadence. It's an unusual way to end a symphonic movement. Two, it's exactly the phrase with which Brahms originally intended to start the movement, but he later removed it, so the symphony opens with that sort of mid-phrase sensation. He just moved that original opening phrase to the end. The second movement is a modified sonata form, lacking a development section. The first theme, a dotted rhythm, is predicted by, and flows from, a quiet fanfare starting with the horns. That theme eventually becomes a lush melody in the strings. The second theme is a slow, peaceful tune in the cellos, with the violins creating a filigreed frame. There's a transition to the recapitulation, but no development. The first theme returns almost secretively in the violas. There are surges of sound from the full orchestra, and the movement ends quietly. The third movement is another surprise. It's one of Brahms' most joyous pieces and sounds like a triumphant finale. It's the one and only time in his symphonies that he uses a triangle. He also used one in the Academic Festival Overture, and that's about it for sparkly Brahms. The third movement hits the ground running with full orchestra. The triangle comes in pretty quickly, then is used for effect throughout the movement. We first hear it less than a minute into the movement. You may have noticed that this first theme is divided into three distinct sections. One... Two... 
two, and three. That jumpy second section. Could it possibly have been inspired by Mendelssohn's first song without words? The Mendelssohn was written 50 years earlier, so who knows? Theme 2 is a bit of a breather, but still very optimistic. This is once again a sonata form, so there's an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation and a coda. The movement ends with such jubilant exhilaration that it's easy to think the symphony has come to an end. Don't do what I once did and leap up applauding wildly at the end of this movement. It's embarrassing, and the symphony isn't over yet. The last movement is perhaps the most unusual of all. It's a Baroque form called a chaconne or passacaglia. That's a short bass line repeated with variations above it. In this movement, Brahms uses 30 variations. Brahms was sometimes criticized for not being modern enough. His use of a huge, serious Baroque form to end his last symphony did not endear him to his critics, even though he pointed out that Beethoven had used variations in the last movement of his groundbreaking Third Symphony. There's some evidence that Brahms' bass line was inspired by the Chaconne at the end of the Cantata No. 150 by Bach, For Thee, O Lord, I Long. It's not known exactly when Bach wrote it. If he did, that's in dispute, too. But it's generally considered to be one of his very early cantatas. Brahms' version of that opens the last movement of the Fourth Symphony. The eight-barsha con bass is played through twice before the variations begin. The variations are so different that what we hear is ten minutes of a wide range of Brahms' most masterful writing for orchestra. You might actually hear that distinctive bass line throughout, but it's easier to hear it as a repeating harmonic progression than an actual voice line. The first variation is a good example of the rather subdued ones. 
they can also get very boisterous. The variations are followed by a coda in which there are four variation false starts that never complete. And the finale is the only time Brahms ended a symphony in a minor key. Maestro Peter Gajewski will conduct these two Brahms masterpieces, the Violin Concerto, with soloist Melissa White, and the Fourth Symphony in E minor, on March 17th and 18th at the Music Center at Strathmore. More information is at nationalphilharmonic.org. I'm Marilyn Cooley, with this National Philharmonic introduction to Spirited Brahms. (laughs) ¶¶